Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. It's referendum week. On Friday, voters across the Republic of Ireland will go to the polls to decide whether to repeal the country's anti-abortion laws. How did the referendum come about? What has the campaign been like so far? And who is on either side of the debate? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope, and I'm with Progress Chair Alison McGovern and Deputy Director Stephanie Lloyd. Our guest today is the writer and activist Neve Neve-Rulon. Before we look at this week's referendum, I'd like to look back a little, because this isn't the first time that Irish social reform has been put to the public vote. In 2015, Ireland became the first country to introduce same-sex marriage via a referendum. So, Neve, can we just start with why referendums are used as a tool for this sort of social reform in Ireland? Sure. Essentially, we have a codified and really quite restrictive and overreaching constitution in Ireland. It was written near enough by one man in the 1930s, as Eamon de Valera. And since then, we've had more referendums than, as far as I'm aware, any other country in the wow. world. Really? Uh, on the face, yeah. To, Could to you imagine? Alter that <laughs> constitution. <laughs> I think we've had, this is about our 41st in the last wow. 70 years. Um, yeah. I mean, something I find quite interesting about our constitution that doesn't get talked about a lot is that it barely passed when it was first voted on, largely because it was so misogynistic that there was a huge women's vote against it. And so this isn't actually a constitution that's ever had, you know, really resounding public support. And that um, was in the 30s? Yeah, the late 30s, yeah. Okay. Um, but then in 1983, we had this amendment on abortion introduced, but it also had a very restrictive definition of, and conservative def- definition of the family, which is why we had to have the marriage vote. Mm-hmm. But, you know, any Irish activist in either of these two areas has heard dozens of times that, questions of social justice and social reform shouldn't be done by referendum. We agree. Mm. Uh, We all wish we didn't have to have these referendum campaigns. They're very unpleasant for everyone involved. But in these two cases, it was the only way to get it done. Does it bring about an adverse effect on on public debate then doing it in in, in this manner? I mean, you can argue the toss, I guess, as you know, you have done here that, you know, there's an increasing tendency towards putting things to referendum (laughs) in the UK. With mixed Um, results. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) I think there are some issues where, you know, it actually can create quite a positive 
discussion. You know, for example, we have a constant debate over whether our upper house should exist. That was put to a referendum a couple of years ago. It didn't pass. Our, we still have our upper house, but there's vague promises of reform. And issues like that, arguably, there is a value in kind of discussing the way that your democracy mm. works and making changes like that by referendum. I think on questions of individual rights, that it's toxic to put them to referendum. In 2015, there is very strong anecdotal evidence that in the course of the marriage equality referendum, that calls to LGBT helplines went up significantly, you know, and certainly I know that for so many of my gay friends that that was just, you know, a really difficult period. Mm. Because it was, because it was essentially questioning their identity. Yeah. And because, I mean, I remember canvassing in that referendum and having to knock on people's door and say, you know, hello, I'm Neve. I'd potentially like to get married someday. Would you please, like, Will you please let me? Yeah. yeah. Which is just, you know, seems like an awful thing to have to do as a citizen. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I, I, have there been any referendums on social reforms that have stopped them? Or, or do you think if it didn't have to be via referendum, maybe equal marriage or liberalised abortion laws would have come in sooner? I think that's absolutely the case with liberalised abortion laws. Mm. And again, you know, we should remember that this came in in 1983. Because mm. that was by referendum as well, wasn't it? Yeah, that was by referendum. So it's a slight sidetrack, but it's kind of an amazing story in that in the 1970s in the US, you had Roe v. Wade, which, you know, decriminalized abortion across the US based on a Supreme Court interpretation of privacy rights. At the same time, there was a similar ruling in Ireland around contraception that created a more liberal system for contraception. And this group of, you know, really hard right Catholic activists decided that they needed to protect against abortion being introduced in Ireland via the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And so they figured out that the only way to do that was to create a constitutional prohibition on abortion. And so actually quite a tiny group of predominantly right-wing men got a vote on introducing an amendment that Mm -hmm. creates an equal right to life for the mother and fetus, which we're still trying to get shot off. (laughs) (laughs) Were you surprised by the scale of victory for the yes vote in 2015? Because I think it was was over 60%, wasn't it? It was 63%. Mm. I was relieved. (laughs) Uh, But I think, you know, they ran a really smart campaign Mm. in 2015. And it was, I mean, to be in Ireland in those few weeks Mm -hmm. was incredible. It was so positive. It was, you know, just this really empowering moment for all sorts of people who kind of had felt a bit different growing up in Ireland. And it was you know, a really lovely time. So actually I wasn't hugely surprised that the vote mm. was that conclusive. Yeah, I remember watching it over here in the UK with lots of kind of other LGBT activists. It's obviously something that I'm kind of really involved in myself. And it was, it was so positive. It was so well run. Um, and there was a huge element as well about, and I remember it was like, talk to your granny about stuff. And, mm. like, and in a way that was quite nicely used, unlike some recent hijackings of that but also then in terms of the like you know I remember there was this video that just always sticks with me that was like bring your family with you and it was on the day and it was all about the day of the vote and it was like you know it was younger people going up to their parents and stuff being like come on will you come with me like will you come with me and and vote on this and it was you know for someone you know it can I can't even imagine what it was like I tried to get over but just didn't have the opportunity to go and campaign and as you said to knock on someone's door and be like hi can you please give me the same rights that you have and knowing how difficult that is to out yourself in so many day-to-day situations to do that in that kind of context, I think is terrifying, but it was so positive to see. I mean, like I'm not a fan of, as you know, everyone is like, I'm not a fan of minority rights being decided by a majority and referendum like that. But if you are going to have it, I mean, what a positive 
campaign that was in so many ways. That seems like a really interesting aspect of it, I think, because certainly from over here, a lot of the media coverage was of that positive element of the of mm. the campaign, of the people celebrating in the streets, of the brilliant campaign videos that were kind of inspiring. But n- not so much of it was covered in this kind of this slightly vicious underbelly that, that you describe. And, and so I think at the moment, at that moment, probably a lot of people would have liked the opportunity to have had it to have vote here because of because of the way that it turned out without mm. really kind of um, realising that, that other element of it. Yeah, like the reality of that situation is is deeply, deeply unpleasant. Referenda are always very difficult. Mm. In the UK, I think we have experienced some of that division with the recent referenda, whether it's the Scottish independence referendum or certainly Brexit. But I guess the point is, even when you win, you kind of lose. Mm-hmm. The splits in the vote in that referendum, did it play to the kind of natural thing of big cities are more liberal leaning and other places less so? For instance, did, did, did Dublin have a bigger yes vote than other places? Yeah, yeah. I think that Dublin... I think Dublin South Central had the biggest yes vote in the country. Um, There was only one constituency that voted no or one region that voted no, which was really tough for, you know, Mm. activists in that area, obviously. Yeah, Yeah, it was kind of what you'd expect in that all the cities voted yes in much higher numbers. But at the same time, you know, it was it was a solid majority and that came from all over the country. Did the role of, um, I think all the major parties supported a yes vote in the end, didn't they? So did that play a big role, do you think? I think it probably did. Yeah, if only that we had the resources of all the big (laughs) parties. It's a pretty big infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was out one evening canvassing and, you know, Leo Varadkar, now Taoiseach, was kind of knocking on the door next to me, which was, you know, having someone out with you who has that kind of recognition that the Minister for Health at the time is there backing this. And obviously he came out during that campaign, which is... That was hugely influential. And I think, you know, the thing was that just in that campaign, so many different segments of the population made it personal to themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there's a certain type of, you know, certainly a certain type of politically active, very ambitious man for whom Leo Varadkar is going to really have an influence. There is, you know, I'm the then Taoiseach Enda Kenny is from Mayo in the west of Ireland, which is where my family is from. And, you know, for a lot of them, I think that having him back it makes them gives them a permission to back Mm. it themselves and I think that they built an incredible broad church to get that referendum passed with the level of support that it had yeah I mean I I think the one thing that's similar there even though completely different process is that we did in the end have quite a broad church Mm. for same-sex marriage in this country and I think that really helped you know I like I would be David Cameron's first and (laughs) worst critic (laughs) Uh, on everything else, but I think he saw the need for a, a broad consensus on this issue. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about this week's referendum just after this message. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My name is Mary Wimbury. I'm standing for Labour's National Executive Committee. Along with my fellow centre-left candidates for the NEC, I'm campaigning for Labour Party members to have a say on Brexit at Labour Party conference. Last year, a stitch-up kept Brexit off the conference agenda. At Scottish Labour conference, the same happened. This year, Labour members must debate the biggest issue facing the country. Sign up to our campaign now at laboursay.eu. Thank you. So, Neve, I want to get into why what the political reasons for this week's referendum were. How did it come about, essentially? How were repeal campaigners able to apply the political pressure? And and why did the government kind of cave into it? Well, I think that there's a huge amount at play. I think that one thing we should say to start with is that a lot of feminist activists in Ireland have been campaigning on this for such a long time, for, Mm. for, for the 35 years since the Eighth Amendment was first introduced. And To be honest, I sometimes wonder how they have managed to keep fighting on this issue for so long. Mm. I think that a real watershed was the death of Savita Halapanavar in 2012. So this was a young Indian woman living in Ireland who had complications in relation to her pregnancy. But because the doctors could still detect a fetal heartbeat, she wasn't able to get a termination, um, which then caused sepsis and and she died in, in a hospital in Galway. And I... The night that that story broke, I was at the kind of demonstration outside our parliament and it was, I mean, it was devastating. Like it was just absolutely dead silent. You know, a couple of times people tried to start chanting, but, you know, it just fell off. I don't think I've ever experienced that kind of profound a political moment and you could just feel that something had, had changed. And very soon after that, we got a slight kind of softening of the law. And I think that that was the moment that a kind of new generation of young women and, and men realised that we just couldn't couldn't have this anymore and that they had to get as involved as another generation of women had been in, in 83 and, and around that time. And we've seen since, since then, we've seen just a really steady building of momentum around this issue. The role that the 2015 marriage referendum played in that is something I find fascinating and will be really interested to, you know, read the history books and how they assess it. I do think that there's an extent to which, you know, Irish people got a bit of a taste for being progressive heroes <laughs> in 2015. Good for them. Yeah. Because it was the first country in the world, I think, to introduce it via referendum, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. first yeah. one. And, you know, people who are on the left are generally liberal. You know, we don't get a lot of wins in Ireland. And so I think that that definitely contributed to the belief of a younger generation that they could win political change. 
But at the same time, I think that this issue that abortion is much, much trickier and more yeah. difficult to win in Ireland and anywhere. So I mean, what kind of lengths do women have to go through if they do need a, an abortion in Ireland? And, and is it becoming more kind of public knowledge about what women do have to do? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not an expert in kind of the exact definitions and the exact laws, mm. but essentially in wealthier women, women who are able to travel will come to the UK and get terminations here. That obviously is expensive. It can be incredibly traumatic. And because you don't have proper continuity of care, it can be dangerous. We have seen a huge increase in the number of women that we know are taking abortion pills in their homes. While we don't have exact numbers on that, you can see that the numbers who are coming here are falling and mm. the number of terminations isn't falling. So there's a lot of women who are taking pills at home, which again is, you know, terrifying. And the deputy prime minister last week said that one of his reasons that he's changed his mind on this issue is that he's, you know, afraid of the day he wakes up and reads about a woman who's, you know, hemorrhaged at home because mm. she took pills unsupervised. And then there are a very, very small number of cases where you can access termination legally in Ireland, but that's where there's a threat to the life of the mother and that has to be certified by two doctors and it's, you know, a massive process to, to get to that point. And there's very, very few cases where you do get to that point. Which groups support repealing the 8th and how many parties, how broad is, is, is the level of support? So it's at this point kind of astonishingly broad to me in that if you told me a year ago that the leaders of both our major parties now are like fully signed up yes supporters in this referendum. The entire cabinet supports yes in the referendum. They have differing opinions about what the new legislation should be, mm. but they all agree that the current system isn't working and that mm. it needs to be changed. There is some division within the two big parties in that they both have, they're both centrist parties with very significant conservative wings and there's still a lot of opposition within those. And so both parties have, have you know, free campaigning rights for their, their MPs. Um, and then among the smaller parties, there's pretty much universal support. The Labour Party in Ireland obviously supports it um, completely. So does Sinn Féin. And so do a lot of the independents uh, who currently make up quite a big chunk of the parliament. So how recently have the kind of two main political leaders come around to it? Uh, are there long, long standing views that they've held on backbenches or, or is it more no, recently? It's this year, it's 2018. Really? So in the, in the last five months. Um, it's amazing how these things happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I mean, certainly, you know, Leo Varadkar, the, the Taoiseach is, you know, he's a he's a canny operator and <laughs> he doesn't back things he doesn't think will win. You know, he's a medical doctor. I suspect he's held this belief for a very long time, but right. wanted to keep it quiet. <laughs> yeah. um, to my mind, the much bigger moment was when Michal Martin, who's the leader of Fianna Fáil, the leader of the opposition, gave a really kind of moving speech in Parliament laying out why he supported it. And Fianna Fáil has been historically much more aggressively kind of conservative on this mm. issue. You know, you look at the kind of proportion of the vote that those two parties suck up between them in every election. Yeah. And that, you know, that we've got the leaders of both, I think is a pretty extraordinary shift. And I mean, back in the 80s, you know, when this came into, into the Constitution in the first place, part of the reason for that was that neither party wanted to be less conservative yeah. than the other, mm. like that they were competing with each other to like push this through. So we kept, you know, switching governments every kind of six or eight months in the early 80s. But both parties were just hammering on this really conservative agenda. It's interesting that people forget that kind of moral crisis 
like faux moral crisis thing that went Mm -hmm. on in the 80s. You know, we had Section 28 here. Mm. The force of that kind of traditional family right-wing campaigner, Mm. you know, it really was a force in the 1980s. We sort of like, those of us who kind of came of age in the 1990s, I think have like pushed it to the back of our minds. But there was a, there was a real moment where, you know, up to, up to John Major in this country and his that kind of back to basics, terrible campaign. There was the 1980s had this economic ultra liberalism, but deep social conservatism mm. like across Western democracies. Yeah. And I think in Ireland that you had an astonishing situation through the 80s where the conservative Catholic right just had win after win after win. Yeah. So they got through the Eighth Amendment. Then they won a referendum on divorce uh, you still, homosexuality was still criminal at that time in Ireland. Contraception was virtually criminal. And that lasted up until about 1992, when you had a very slight softening of our abortion law. But then you look at the period since then, and it's been one defeat after another for them. You know, like Ireland today is unrecognisable from Ireland in 1992. So, Have we yeah. noticed a more focus on this issue in the feminism movement in Britain over the past couple of years, do you think? Because I feel like uh, up until then, there wasn't a big kind of, it didn't feel like um, a big issue over here or something that was recognised. So there's a, I think there's a commonly held but wrong view in Britain that since 67, we've been just fine. Mm -hmm. I would encourage anybody who thinks that to look at the feedback that Diana Johnson got when she recently tried to move a bill to decriminalise abortion because abortion is still part of the criminal law in the, in the United Kingdom. It's the only medical procedure that is. And it's Victorian legislation that nobody has seen fit to take off the statute books uh, since it was introduced. And Diana, quite rightly, I think, you know, makes a good argument that that's not right, that it casts a shadow over this procedure that's unnecessary. And the kind of vitriolic sort of right-wing conservative campaigners just absolutely, you know, fought back at her. And I think that was quite a shocking moment for some of us in, you know, especially in the kind of labour women's movement, that what we kind of thought was a fairly sensible measure was being met with such ferocity. And I think it made a lot of us think, actually, hang on, you still need the permission of two doctors Mm -hmm. in this country. Why? We are in a situation now where great advances in in the procedure for terminations have been made. So the vast majority of terminations in the UK now are done medically, not surgically. Yeah. So you take pills rather than rather than have surgery, and that's excellent because it's much less invasive. It's obviously like much cheaper for the NHS as well. But that's happened at the same time as you know access is often still kind of fragile and the NHS pays for the vast majority of terminations but it doesn't actually provide them the vast majority of terminations in Britain now provided by independent organizations now what's the problem with that well the issue with that is where are the next breakthroughs on the science of you know women's health going to come from if the NHS is steadily disinvested in obstetricians and gynecologists who are skilled at doing this procedure we had a recently had a presentation at the women's plp about this and i think there was a sharp intake of breath at how we've been a little bit complacent and 
you know, we think we've got it all sorted and we have not. You know, I think there's still a sense that if you need a termination, whilst I think most people know how to get it sorted and whatever, it's still seen as shameful in the UK, despite, as I understand it, one in three women having a termination. And that shame has caused us to not want to talk about some of the structural issues in developing that healthcare for women. I think there's a couple of other things that sit around this as well. And I think Ali is totally right in terms of the situation we have in the UK. The fact it's criminal law. I mean, it's it's the most unusual thing in kind of like Western democracies in lots of ways that this is in criminal law. And it's so firmly placed in that as well. But I also think that none of this stuff also happens in a vacuum. So when I first got involved in my kind of activism, it was actually through uh, Anne Widdicombe's tour in 2007 or early 2008, mm. where she was kind of touring the country about why we need to kind of roll back on on abortion rights in the country. Um, I was protesting against that, to be clear. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, we're, we're now seeing situations where there are huge cuts in services around the country. We're seeing the impact of that. And I think to not see the impact of that in the UK in terms of access to abortion would be missing a really key problem. Because if you think how long it can take at times to get access to doctors, and then you have to have two doctors to be able to do that signature. And also doctors have the right to be able to say, no, sorry, it's not something I would want to be involved in, but I can refer you on to somebody else. Like, there are all of these things now where terminations are happening later than necessary, which causes far more harm and trauma. But also, you're also seeing this kind of American style of campaigning kind of being exported over. So you're seeing more protests happen outside of clinics. You're seeing kind of campaigners like 40 Days for Life that will stand outside clinics literally for 40 days and harass women as they walk in to try and access these kinds of services. And they're doing it because they know that on large, they wouldn't be able to get really regressive legislation through Parliament. It's just the votes wouldn't be there. It just wouldn't happen. Although there's always been, that's true. But again, it comes back to this complacency point. Yeah. In in the UK, there's always been this kind of issue of um, t- like the time limit rumbling mm. away. Yeah. Like it became quite the thing to say, you know, well, with the advance of medical science, oh, you know, one more person, and I'm like, that's fine. But the overwhelming majority of the medical community believes that it's currently acceptable. Yeah. So, so exactly. <laughs> and, and the reason why people say that, I think, Hang on, just to be clear, sorry, for sh- um, all right. I'm doing that thing. In, on in, in terms of when we talk about the time limit, what is the conversation? There? Okay. So, so Currently in the UK, you can have a termination up to 24 weeks gestation uh, period. As Steph was just saying, the vast majority of terminations that are done um, happen uh, in the the early weeks of pregnancy up to like 10 to 12 weeks. And that's, that's, you know, especially because now we have medical terminations. So, you know, it's, it's much more straightforward, I think. Those late abortions tend to be for very specific, difficult reasons, like to do with the development of the fetus, for example, where clearly if the pregnancy is continued up to that point where, you know, there is a good reason why at that late stage, the decision unfortunately has to be taken. However, in British politics, people like Nadine Dorries have raised the like the question about whether when you can have a premature birth at, say, 28 weeks and um, the the baby might survive mm. because of the 
move on in medical science and our care for small uh, babies that are born premature, whether it's still justified to have the 24-week limit. But the point is, the reason why the medical community, by and large, you know, overwhelmingly agree with the law as it is in terms of date is because those late terminations are for really specific medical reasons that, you know, where um, people are being put in, you know, have very difficult decisions to make. And I personally don't think in that situation, you would want to limit the options of a, for a, a dignified situation for everybody um, concerned. And anyway, all of that is just so much noise when actually the real problem is the one that Steph just talked about, which is the biggest issue that most women have in terms of healthcare in the UK today is access is like getting a GP's appointment, the, the like closure and diminution of sexual health clinics in the UK all means that if you need a termination or you think you might need a termination, there's no, there's a restriction um, that's relatively recent. And I think that's where we have to like not sit on our laurels, not think we fixed it all in 67 and still campaign. Well, the thing that scares me about that as well is currently through the Lords, there's a, a bill that's been put forward called unconscientious objection. And basically this is the scary thing, right? So they know that they cannot just instantly go, well, let's just get rid of abortion. But what they know they can do is be like, okay, well, we'll chip away at the time limit or we'll, we'll chip away at the fact that. So this bill is all about the fact that women would be denied medical. So a doctor would basically have the right to deny not only doing the procedure or, or doing that, but referring you on to another doctor. And that's the thing. That's where it's about, okay, well, we can't stop you, but what we can try and do is stop you for long enough that you then can't have an abortion. Yeah. Or, or we're we, going to make it so difficult for you. Or we you. had all of that that stuff about, um, I think, again, this was a Nadine Dory special about requiring Gosh. people to have counselling. It's all of these things. It's like, if we can't get it all in one big go, what we'll do is we'll put all of these barriers in place to try and make it so difficult and so painful for the person that's going through that process to try and to try and stop that and limit it in that way. And I think we have to remember as well that, you know, we all say the UK when we're talking about this, but that Northern Ireland Not Northern Ireland, Ireland. Indeed. Not Northern you know, Ireland, uh, indeed. An abortion, a restriction on abortion that's far more conservative and limiting than in the Republic of Ireland. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, you consider that the, the government here clearly doesn't care, given that they're yeah. perfectly happy to cooperate with the DUP where it suits them when the DUP is so, so trenchantly opposed to women's rights and minority rights in all sorts of contexts. I mean, that's, you know, that's an issue for any UK feminist. I, I was reading recently, actually, that um, Theresa May her view is that she personally supports lowering the time limit on terminations, but wouldn't legislate for it, which I think comes back to essentially yeah, it's a, Alison, what you said earlier. That's a dog earlier. whistle. Yeah. Like, is, 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 Jacob Rees-Mogg does exactly this as well. He always sits there and when people interview him and they're like, but, but you don't, you don't believe in abortion. You don't believe in gay rights. And he's like, no, I don't, but I wouldn't do anything about it. If you ever made me the prime minister of this country. And it's like, what are you talking well, about? Essentially that argument is because I don't think I'd have the political capital to do it. And essentially it just means that if other people create that political capital, I'll you'd, be, you'd be on the wagon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, but I think it's okay. Maybe, maybe that's right. It's like what they accept. They don't have the political capital to do it. I'd like to ban chewing gum, but I accept <laughs> <laughs> the political capital to do it. Controversial. Yeah. Well, um, makes a great mess. Um, but, I worry that it's 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 all just like kind of right wing virtue signaling that it's actually like something slightly worse. And it's a way in which sort of people who sort of claim to be centrist politicians 
actually don't really have the courage of their convictions and just need to send a nod and a wink um, to, to the hard right to say I'm one of yours really you know it's safe to vote for me and I think that's I don't know I you know I sort of slightly suspect um, that that's the case but I think it's it's really reprehensible uh, because in the end you know of course it wasn't easy for Diana to get up in the House of Commons and talk about abortion and know what her post bag would be filled with the next day it wasn't easy but you know, she's doing her duty as a progressive and a feminist and she should be applauded for that. Steph, you mentioned earlier about um, the kind of like influx of US style campaigning um, in, around this debate um, and obviously with the stuff around uh, campaigning around outside abortion centres, which um, uh, I know e- Ealing Council, I think, um, has done some great stuff on, hasn't Yeah, so Ealing Council basically um, created... Uh, they were the first council in the UK to do it as well. They've created like buffer zones around. So there's lots of debate that goes back and forwards about freedom of speech and freedom of protest. But it's also then, it's one of those things where not everybody's, like sometimes people's rights will conflict. So your right to protest is also then interfering with somebody's right to their healthcare. So it's about basically creating zones where um, people cannot protest around it because it's not it's not freedom of speech. It's abuse often. It's intimidation. Um, so yeah, Ealing Council have done it. There's quite a few other councils um, that are looking and, and currently going through the motions to be able to do that, which is which is really exciting. Well, also I say exciting, actually terrifying that we have to create those zones around these places just so that people can feel safe when accessing healthcare. And Neve, have these um, kind of right-wing American anti-choice groups kind of infiltrated the referendum debate and has it affected the tone? Well, there's no question that historically those groups have had a massive role Mm. in Irish debates around abortion um, and have put in huge, huge amounts of money. Um, And Ireland is kind of seen as a bit of a final frontier. And so, you know, they'll defend it to the last. Uh, In this campaign, there are we have quite strict rules around electoral spending. So only Irish residents or citizens are allowed to donate to either campaign. It seems extremely likely that some of those American groups have found ways around that electoral spending. In particular, they found a loophole around uh, digital advertising, that there wasn't an effective way to police our electoral spending laws with regard to digital advertising. But in fairness to Facebook and Twitter and Google too, I think, uh, they have essentially implemented bans on foreign advertising in, in the Irish referendum campaign. But there's so, definitely tried a- to, so basically Facebook are trying to unilaterally deal with it because it probably is a loophole, but they have actually yeah, made some Yeah, but Facebook has said that, we're, that they're going to act according to the spirit of our electoral spending laws, which is being, which is being violated by these campaigns, which is good know, for them. Play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what's the general tone been like of, of the debate? It's been pretty awful. Um, I mean, I was in Ireland last weekend and I mean, seeing the posters that are that are up on lampposts in Ireland is, you know, it's horrendous. There's just, you know, there's fetuses everywhere, mm. essentially. Um, and, you know, things that if you're if you're someone for whom the, this issue hits home, if you're someone who's been in one of those, you know, really horrible, painful situations with regard to this issue, I mean, it must be just so appallingly traumatic. The debates have been incredibly acrimonious. There have been, you know, really horrendous character assassinations on people, not on both sides, of people who are on the yes side. Yeah. Uh, and I, and that's it, is that people are going to say that this is 
this is both sides that yeah. there's blame all around. But to be honest, I, I don't believe that. It's 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 just it's been really painful. Like it's really horrible to be in the place where you're from and that you care about and have to have to see these sorts of things. I think the thing is with this stuff is which people always try and overcomplicate it. Like they always they'll always try and kind of medicalize lots of it. And there's loads of things that they'll do to try and make it quite inaccessible, I think, for people to on the no sides of lots of these things. I remember lots of stuff around same sex marriage in the UK when it was going through Parliament. And the thing is, though, like, it, people will try and make it seem complicated, but actually the very core of this question and this referendum is so unbelievably simple. Like, it's, it is, will, will you allow female citizens the right to say, do you know what, right now, for all plethora of reasons, I can't be a mother? And, like, it's, it's just the most simple and basic and human right to want to, to be able to exercise that. And I think... That's the thing I think always, particularly around like the equalities questions and things like that, everyone always tries to overcomplicate it. But actually the core of what it is, same with the equal marriage one, it was like, I just want the right to love who I want to love and have the same rights and respect for that and have the, and you know, with this, it's, I want to have the right to my own body and what, and what happens with that. And I think sometimes all that stuff gets so lost amongst everything else. And it's really but I important. do think that the Yes campaign, the pro-repeal campaign in Ireland has I mean, they've hit such a sweet note with yeah. their messaging and that it's, you know, everything is about, you know, compassion in difficult situations. Mm. It's about trusting women. It's about women's health. Yeah. You know, in some ways I'd like them to be a bit more radical than they have been, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, I think that they have done an all credit to everyone involved with the campaign. I think they've done a really good job of creating a kind of safe space where even if you're someone who historically has had very strong opinions in the other direction, that you know, that people are just being told that like, it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to recognize that this issue is more complicated than you maybe used to think it was. And I think that the really interesting thing I suspect about this referendum is the conversations that people are like very quietly having, you know, at home and in, you know, country pubs and things like that, where people you never would have believed could change their minds probably, probably have. And um, so how change happens. Yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously, if things go well later this week, presumably then there is the kind of big hurdle of what the legislation looks like and that sort of stuff mm -hmm. to come and having to deal with a lot of the issues that we've talked about that we still have here. But I'm not going to ask you to predict the result, but um, do you think that there is the, the, the same kind of sense of... Uh, optimism and positivity that there was around the yes campaign in, in 2015 here no uh i wish that there was but i think on one level just this is a harder issue you mm. know like marriages are really are fun you know they marriage also, is a like, happy lots, thing lots like, of, it doesn't affect everyone like it's like will you let me just do this one thing it's yeah. not it can actually quite easily not affect other people's lives in lots of ways mm -hmm. this affects a lot more people yeah and even if you know even if you have like the perfect system of, of healthcare around abortion, you know, there's still women who are going to be in really difficult situations having abortions. It's still a medical procedure. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think it can ever be quite as positive. I think that there's a lot of, you know, a lot of pride in how far this has already come. I think it's moved in the last three, four or five years. It's moved a lot faster than any of us thought that it would. Uh, and, and that's really positive. But my overwhelming feeling is that people just just want it to be over with. 
and people are and people are terrified that it could go the wrong way. I mean, I'm not going to make a prediction, but it's going to be incredibly close. Um, and more, what troubles me more than the question of the legislation we'll have if it's a yes vote is if it's a no vote. What what, what do we do then? Do we just yeah. accept? kind of an endless continuance of the current situation where we just export our problems and where women are in these kind of horrendous situations or no. do we actually enforce our laws? I mean, what what's the plan? Uh, I was really, I mean, I'm already feeling kind of yeah. just so apprehensive. Do you know what time we might kind of expect the result like this week? Uh, so we count the day after, not overnight. Um Lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a much better system, but that's a, a story for another day. You are um, right. Uh, no. <laughs> no so I expect... Me and have had this argument before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I expect that if, assuming that it gets resolved on first count, uh, I'd expect that we'd have a result about five, six on Saturday. If it's clear, then... I mean, in 2015, with the marriage vote, we knew as soon as the boxes were opened yeah. that it was, you know, a stonking win. But I don't think it's going to be that clear this time. So it's going to be probably, probably early evening. But if there's recounts or any kind of controversy, it potentially drags on a bit longer than that. Goodness me. I think that's all we have time for that conversation. But Neve, Guru Margaret. <laughs> Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's show. Uh, so the abortion rights campaign was founded in 2012 in which Dublin hotel that also features in a famous James Joyce short story. You've done this just because you really love James Joyce, I you? do, yeah. But yeah. also Neve's a fan, so that was uh, it's for her as well. There we go. <laughs> Uh, send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or at Progress Online on Twitter and you could win a Progress mug. We need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Neve Neve joining us today. Do send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email or best of all, as an iTunes review. And we will respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And don't forget to subscribe and rate. Thanks for listening. listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.